Thank you, choir, for sharing such a beautiful song, and, and Bill and Glenda and Miss Jeannie for leading us in worship today. As we begin today, we're going to be in 1 Corinthians chapter 11. If you want to go ahead and be turning in your Bibles there, we're going to look at the subject of the Lord's Supper today. It's fitting since we're uh, going to observe the Lord's Supper today, and by God's providence, I ended up on that subject on this day as we have been working through the how of worship. Remember last week we turned in our study of worship from the who and the what and the when, uh, the when and where, and, and now we're on to the, the how. How is it in practical ways, in biblical ways, that we carry out worship? And we've been looking uh, at the personal and the family and the corporate ways that we worship. And so we're, we started with the first act of worship that any believer should take, and that is the act of baptism. And we saw last week how baptism is a sign. It is a sign of God's covenant with us. As God has brought us into His family, He has made us a part of the covenant community that He began with Abraham way back in Genesis chapter 12. And He has incorporated us, even as Gentiles, into that covenant community. And the sign of that incorporation that we take on is the sign of baptism. Well, there's another sign that we keep as believers. There's another sign that God has given us that we as believers in the Lord Jesus Christ, we carry out on a regular basis. And that is the sign of the Lord's Supper. And so we're going to look at the significance and the meaning of the Lord's Supper and what it means for us as we worship together as His congregation here at Antioch West Baptist Church. So Let's begin by going to the Lord in prayer, and then we'll read 1 Corinthians chapter 11 together. Heavenly Father, we come to you today knowing that you have brought us together. Lord, you have brought us together around the truth of who Jesus is. And so we come to this moment of study because we believe that your word is life. And that you intend for us to know who you are and to, through that knowledge of you, be drawn to a new and better relationship in you and to be secured in our faith through the ministry of your word. We also know that you have given us this symbol of the Lord's Supper to secure us, to keep us uh, walking after you. And so, Father, I pray that as we study about and then carry out the Lord's Supper today, that you would use it as a reminder and as a proclamation of your gospel. I pray that you would use me as your preacher to bring the word of God to these, your people, and that we might be encouraged and built up together. It's in Christ's name I pray. Amen. So let's read together 1 Corinthians chapter 11. Starting in verse 17, God's word says, But in the following instructions, I do not commend you, because when you come together, it is not for the better, but for the worse. For in the first place, when you come together as a church, I hear that there are divisions among you, and I believe it in part. For there must be factions among you in order that those who are genuine among you may be recognized. When you come together... It is not for the Lord's Supper that you eat, for in eating, each one goes ahead with his own meal. One goes hungry, another gets drunk. 
What? Do you not have houses to eat and drink in? Or do you despise the church of God and humiliate those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I commend you in this? No, I will not. For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, also, he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Whoever, therefore, eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of profaning the body and blood of the, of the Lord. Let a person examine himself then, and so eat the bread and drink of the cup. For anyone who eats, uh, he eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. That is why many of you are weak and ill, and some have died. But if we judged ourselves truly, we would not be judged. But when we are judged by the Lord, we are disciplined so that we may not be condemned along with the world. So then, my brothers, when you come together to eat, wait for one another. If anyone is hungry, let him eat at home. So then, when you come together, it will not be for judgment. Above the, uh, about the other things, I will give directions when I come. So there are three points that I want you to see from the text that we just read about the Lord's Supper. First, we're going to look at the seriousness of the supper. Second, the symbols of the supper. And lastly, the sign of the supper. So the seriousness, the symbols, and the sign of the supper. So first, in verses 17 through 22, we see the seriousness of the Lord's Supper. Now, if you read the book of 1 Corinthians, and by the way, in just a few weeks, we're going to start on Sunday night to work through the book of 1 Corinthians. But if you've ever read that book, you know that you could basically sum up the book of 1 Corinthians and 2 Corinthians as a rebuke against the Corinthian Christians. These believers were so immature in every respect of their faith that Paul feels like he needs to write what scholars believe are three different letters. We don't have the, the, the true second letter of 1 Corinthians, but I mean of 2 Corinthians. But they, he feel like, feels like he needs to write three different letters to address the errors that this congregation has been committing. And among those errors is a rebuke that we find here in 1 Corinthians 11. Now, there are two aspects of this rebuke that help us to understand just how serious the Lord's Supper should be taken by the church. So in verses 17 through 19, Paul rebukes them for their disunity. So this, this is a recurring theme in the letter of 1 Corinthians. Uh, the people of, first Cor of Corinthians, or the Corinthian Christians, they were divided over a number of things. First of all, in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, you find that they're divided over which preacher they like the best. 
They, 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 some of them like Paul, some of them like Apollos, some of them claim that they're, they're true followers of Jesus and they don't need either of their teachers that they've had before. And you know, it's a sad thing that we still have that today. We tend to listen to celebrity preachers. We like the ones that are on TV and the ones that are on radio and the ones that are on podcasts. And we tend to gravitate to those dynamic, powerful preachers and we can often lose sight of the Christ that we are supposed to follow because we're so absorbed in the celebrities that we're following. Be careful, church, that you do not determine your faith based on who led you to Christ or the pastor that you grew up under or me who you're growing up under now. Don't align or determine your faith based on the man in the pulpit. Determine your faith based on the Christ that He preaches. Because I will fail you. I, you will find, if you uh, watch me long enough, that I will find a way to disappoint you. I'll forget your birthday. I'll forget. Uh, I'll, I'll, you'll catch me saying something that I might not have should have said. I will be crass with you. I might get angry with you. But if you are looking to me as the source of your faith, then I will ultimately let you down. But Jesus Christ will not. So listen to the things that I preach that magnify Christ and take all that other mess and throw it away. And forget about who I am and instead follow Christ. They were divided over the sins that they tolerated. They had a horrible sin that Paul talks about in 1 Corinthians chapter 5 that they tolerated. They were divided by the freedoms that they enjoyed. So some enjoyed the fact that they could eat meat sacrificed to idols and others thought that was wrong. So now... Paul turns to one of the clearest, most practical examples of their division. They were divided over how they practiced the Lord's Supper. Did you know that besides the issue of baptism, the greatest point of division among denominations today is over the particulars of the Lord's Supper? I mean, we as Baptists can't even agree over how to administer the Lord's Supper. Some churches, some Baptist churches believe in closed communion. Some believe in open communion. Some believe in half open, half closed communion. It just depends church to church on how we administer the Lord's Supper. Some denominations like the Roman Catholic Church and the Lutherans believe that the Lord's Supper literally becomes the body and blood of Christ and in some way that saves you. On the other hand, on the opposite end of the spectrum, some denominations and some of us Baptists have been guilty of this. We believe that you can do communion however, whenever, uh, with whomever you want. And it really doesn't matter how or when or, how or where you administer the Lord's Supper. I had a, an experience when I was a youth minister. We went to a church camp and, and during the, the times that we had to be together as youth ministers at this church camp, we all gathered together in a round table discussion and one of the other youth ministers were bragging about the fact that he had given his students communion the night before and that he didn't have any unleavened bread or grape juice, so he just used hot dog buns and milk. 
And he thought that was the coolest thing ever, ever, because, you know, we youth ministers, we have to be a little radical at times. And they, they, they thought, he thought that he was just being revolutionary by administering the Lord's Supper with milk and hot dog buns. He wanted to show that it really didn't matter what you used in communion. So we can treat communion as flippantly as we can. And it's a sad thing that something that was intended to bind all believers together can become a point of contention that divides churches to this day. Second, in verses 20 through 22, Paul rebukes the Corinthians for their disrespect. The, um, the problem with the Lord's Supper that had arisen in the Corinthian church was that it had turned into a big party. Uh, the factions, the different groups in this church had divided to the point that they didn't serve a common bread and a common cup, but instead they all brought their own meal to the Lord's Supper. And so the rich folks, they brought a fine wine and they brought a plenty, plenty of bread and they all just sat around and had a big old party and got stone cold drunk. But the poor folk, on the other hand, they didn't have anything to bring and so they didn't even have an opportunity to take bread and wine with the rest of the church. Now, in this, in this little section of Scripture, in these few verses... Paul jams in a whole lot of directions that help us to understand and rightly view the Lord's Supper. First of all, Paul says in verse 18 and then again in verse 20, notice what he says. He says, when you come together as a church. So the first thing we find is the Lord's Supper is an act of worship that should be observed by a body of believers in the local church. As an aside, it's clear to me from this passage and also from early church history that the first churches practiced the Lord's Supper every time they came together. They practiced it as a part of their weekly worship. Now, whether that's practical or not for us to do is something for the deacons to determine but and the church to determine. But I will say that we ought to celebrate the Lord's Supper as much as we can. It has been a practice that I have noticed among pastors of my generation to minimize the Lord's Supper and to spend very little time focusing on it. And instead, it ought to be a central part of our worship and a regular part of our worship. Second, the Lord's Supper should be done with good order, ensuring that everyone is served equally. Notice in verse 21 that one of the major concerns that Paul has is that there are some who are going without. That we all ought to be served equally. And that's one of the, one of the things that we, miss, we probably don't notice because we've been doing it forever. But one of the beautiful things about the way we serve the Lord's Supper is that the deacons ensure that every single person in this congregation is served and then you'll notice, if you pay attention today, I take the plate and I serve the deacons. Everyone should be served, and they hold the plate and serve me. Um, so we ensure that everyone is served equally. Third, the Lord's Supper should be done as a special observance for the purpose of worship, not fellowship. 
in verse 22, Paul tells the Corinthians that if they, their only reason for taking the supper is to enjoy a good meal, which you ain't going to get full on what we're providing today, by the way, uh, then, they, then let them eat at home. The purpose of the supper is not to satisfy someone's hunger or to have a big party. The purpose of the supper is to worship and remember. Now, again, it's become very popular in our day to interpret the Lord's Supper as an opportunity for fellowship. And many churches have uh, gone away from practicing it as part of their worship service and instead carrying it out as sort of a fellowship that you have after the service. And I would say that Paul's instructions here are to say that it should be an act of worship, not an act of fellowship. So the next point that I want you to see is from verses 23 through 25. And that is, I want you to see the symbols of the supper. So Paul turns from his rebuke to remind the Corinthians of the significance of the Lord's Supper. Now, to understand the symbolism of the Lord's Supper, we need to understand where the Lord's Supper comes from. In Matthew chapter 26, verse 17, we find out that Jesus directs his disciples to go into town and to find a place to to meet and to gather the the, uh, instruments and the food for a Passover meal. And it's at this Passover meal that Jesus institutes the Lord's Supper that we now practice today. Now remember, the Passover happened all the way back in Exodus chapter 12. And you remember the story of Moses going uh, back to Egypt and to deliver his people from slavery in Egypt. And he goes to the Pharaoh and says, you know, the famous words, let my people go that they might worship me in the wilderness. And uh, Pharaoh doesn't let him go. So God enacts nine plagues. He brings about nine plagues that obliterate the land and, and give, uh, cause terrible problems on Egypt. But because of Pharaoh's hard heart, he will not let the people of Israel go. So God told Moses that there's a final plague coming. And this plague will be more terrible, more horrific than all the others. God would send the death angel into the land of Egypt to kill every firstborn child in the land. And the Israelites were not immune to this last plague. And if you remember the story, they were immune to every other plague of Egypt. Where there were flies in Egypt, there were not flies in the land of Goshen. Where there was darkness in Egypt, there was not darkness in the land of Goshen. But in this plague, in the tenth plague, death would come for everyone. Unless they took a lamb, a spotless lamb, they sacrificed it, drained its blood, and on the doorposts of their house they splattered the blood of the lamb. If they had the blood of the lamb on the doorpost of their house, the death angel would pass over that house. It was in this 10th plague that the Pharaoh finally relented and let Israel go. God commanded that the Israelites should continually observe this Passover meal to remember how God had delivered them from Egypt. So to this day, 
Jews around the world still celebrate the Passover. And in this meal that the Jews celebrate, there are three pieces of what they call matzah bread. And they take this matzah bread, which is uh, unleavened bread, it's flat, and it actually has holes that are poked into it, and it is grilled in an oven. So when you look at a piece of matzah bread, it's flat, and on it are stripes where the grill marks of the oven are, and holes that are pierced into that bread. And during the Passover meal, the head of the household will take the middle piece of this three pieces of unleavened bread, he will take that and he'll give it to a child and the child will go and hide that piece of bread somewhere in the house. And then, as the ceremony goes on, children will go and they will find that piece of bread and they will bring it back. And the head of the house will break that bread and he will serve it to all who are in attendance. So just imagine Jesus, who is called the Lamb of God by John the Baptist. He's sitting with his disciples on the night before he would go to the cross so that, he would, so that his blood might cover our sins. This Jesus takes this piece of bread that was striped and pierced in the same way that his body would be striped with the lashings of a whip and pierced with the nails and a spear. And he would break this bread that was hidden and brought back. And he would say, this is my body, which is broken for you. And he would tell his disciples, do this in remembrance of me. You see, Jesus takes the sign of God's deliverance of his people from slavery in Egypt, and he elevates it to a higher meaning. Now, this bread doesn't represent just deliverance from physical slavery, but it represents deliverance from the bondage of sin and death. Jesus, in his death, took the stripes and the piercings of a disobedient slave so that we could be set free and made children of God. Not only does the Passover meal involve three pieces of bread, but it also involves four cups of wine. And the third, <clears throat> the third cup, which is taken after the meal, is called the cup of the covenant. So cups play a significant role in the Old Testament. If you think to some of the famous writings in Jeremiah, Cups are an, a significant part of his story. And most of the time, this cup symbolizes God's judgment. You remember the grapes of wrath, the cup of wrath that God threatens to pour out on all of Israel. But a cup of wine can also be a symbol of God's covenant blessing, as it was in Genesis chapter 14 when Melchizedek comes to Abraham and offers Abraham a cup of wine. So Jesus, on the night that he was betrayed, he takes a cup, this third cup of the covenant, and he calls it the cup of the new covenant in my blood. In one horrible act of judgment on the cross of Calvary, Jesus would not allow the cup of God's wrath to pass from him. 
but he would drink it down to the dregs so that we would not face God's judgment. In his resurrection, Jesus establishes a new covenant with those who believe in him so that we do not drink this cup as a sign of wrath. We drink it as a sign of God's blessing, of his covenant with us. So finally, in verses 26 through 34, we find the sign of the supper. In verses 26, in verse 26, Paul gives a final note on the significance of the Lord's Supper. He says that whenever we faithfully keep this practice, notice what he says in verse 26, we proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. This supper is therefore a sign of that, uh, that is meant to remind and to proclaim. It reminds believers of what Christ has done for our salvation. Every time we keep this ordinance, we are preaching a sermon to each other through this bread and this grape juice. This is not just a time for you to zone out and to think about what you've got to eat for lunch and to allow this little morsel of bread to make you even hungrier. This is a time for you to reflect. This is a time for you to pray. This is a time for you to remember. As you hold that bread in your hand or hold that cup of grape juice in your hand while other people are served, it, I encourage you to think about the significance of Jesus' body and His blood. Use that time to confess your sins, to thank God for your salvation, and to pray for the salvation of others. The supper also proclaims the gospel to the world. It looks weird and in fact, that's kind of been a general theme that I've had in this, this sermon series on worship. It looks weird that we would keep this ancient ritual. In the past, in times past, Christians were accused of cannibalism because they said that they were eating the body and blood of Jesus Christ. Today, people think it's strange that we would carry on this ancient ritual when we could just as easily be listening to a podcast on preaching or we could just as easily be enjoying virtual church. But this simple and strange act proclaims the gospel when we do it. So let's do it. And let's do it with thankful hearts that are ready to worship God for what He has done through our Savior and Lord, Jesus Christ. At this time, I'd invite the deacons to come forward as we administer the supper.